The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Rooms, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode, Trident Room host Mike Wish sits down with astronaut Stephen Lindsay. I want to fast forward a little bit to your experience with the first GPS-guided bomb, which I can only imagine was just incredibly impressive to watch. It's notable that you had the foresight to recognize the future applications of that technology, but did you really have a sense for just how much GPS was going to transform not just warfare, but even our everyday lives? Watching that bomb drop, what amazed all of us at the time, you know, at the time we were testing you know, the, the state-of-the-art smart weapons that the Air Force had. That's, we did a lot of smart weapons work. But they were, you know, TV-guided, IR-guided, laser-guided bombs, different things like that, um, missiles and things like that. But we had, I had never, ever seen a bomb dropped that you could actually drop through the clouds where you couldn't see the ground and actually hit a target. Right. Um, right. I'd never seen that done or, and hit it very accurately. And uh, to me, that was a game-changer, but... Honestly, at the time, I was thinking, you know, when we got GPS uh, and, and, and the first time I flew that F-16 with the GPS in it and saw what it could do, um, I, I was really thinking more along the lines, gosh, now I can, I can fly, you know, low altitude, low level to the target. I don't have to go clock, to, clock the map to ground and read maps very carefully and, and spend most of my brain cells doing that. Instead, I, would, I could rely on a very, very accurate navigation system that would take me to my objective, my target, and I could focus on employing the aircraft rather than spending all my time navigating the aircraft. But I, I, and I thought about it, you know, sure, there are going to be civilian applications like, you know, maps, you know, for, for driving your car from point A to point B. But if you think about all of the things that GPS does today, I... I didn't have that big of a picture. I, I don't think any of us could have imagined all of the applications for something like that uh, when, it, when it first came out. Well, from my own experience with the Marine Corps' rocket artillery system called HIMARS, every munition we employed on that system in Afghanistan was GPS-guided. Even when we had cannons with us, they were firing GPS munitions most of the time. Now, much of that was driven by the nature of that particular conflict, but it's obvious just how important that capability is. Yeah, and, and you know, you know, where I go back is uh, is when you look at when you look at the uh, um, you go all the way back to World War II. Look at the combined bomber offensive. You know, where we tried to use B-17s and B-24s and stuff to to bomb Germany and Japan and and uh, and take them down. You know, they would they would send waves of a thousand bombers to hit an oil refinery, and you know, they'd get partial damage of it and. Uh, you know, the doctrine was we can do this precision bombing stuff and we can be, you know, we can avoid collateral damage, pinpoint, hit the military targets and, and meet our objectives with very little collateral damage and be very efficient at doing it. But the truth is they, they didn't have anywhere near the technology to actually pull that off. But where you saw, where you saw the, that doctrine come to life was in the first Desert Storm with um, when you had, truly you had the one bomb one target. You watched what the Abrams tanks were doing out there. One shot, one tank. All of those sorts of things. It all, all that technology came to fruition. The doctrine they tried to establish in the 30s and the 40s 
was finally achievable through the technology by the 1990s. Well, from my own experience with the Marine Corps' rocket artillery system called HIMARS, every munition we employed on that system in Afghanistan was GPS-guided. Even when we had cannons with us, they were firing GPS munitions most of the time. Now, much of that was driven by the nature of that particular conflict, but it's obvious just how important that capability is. It, I, I think it was very comparable, actually. I, uh, <clears throat> you know... I, Coming out of the coming out of the flight test world, where where a lot of times you know I'd be I'd be doing a missile shot that was a you know when you add up all the assets and all we were spending to get this thing just right, the geometry just right, the parameters just right, you know twenty million dollar shot and the pressure that was put on the pilot to to be very very precise in the flying and get the get the data point that that we needed to certify the system so we could handed over to the warfighters. Um, that was, there was a lot of pressure with that. When I went to NASA and, and started training to be a shuttle pilot, and those, those missions are, are similar. They're, they're very pressure filled. You know, you got to deliver, you got to perform. Um, you're, you're at risk doing it. Um, you know, I got, I got in the cockpit, you know, ready for that first flight. And, and it felt to me like a, like a hazardous test mission. Like I'd been on before. I was obviously a different environment. Um, and uh, you know, as far as the, the actual experience of launching as a pilot, um, you know, for the first time, um, you know, I was used to flying high-performance aircraft. Um, but uh, when when the shuttle leaps off the pad and and when the solid rocket boosters light, and you're immediately at almost three Gs, except you're what what's different is you're at three Gs, but you're going straight up while you're doing it, and, and you just got the impression of the immense power. She had seven and a half million pounds of thrust behind you. The immense power and acceleration going straight up, it was just a, it was a wild ride. And uh, the other thing that really strikes me from the first, you know, first ride up was um, at about six and a half minutes, or and that, that equates to about Mach 14, I think. Um, we, uh, we, we typically flew, if you ever watched a shuttle trajectory, we flew heads down, and we did that primarily for load relief on the wings. We didn't want any air loads on the wings, uh, putting the extra strain during the ascent. And once we got out of the atmosphere, uh, at about six and a half minutes, we would actually, the vehicle, we would roll it. So we're upside down. We would roll the heads up because we would transition to communications with uh, through teeter satellites instead of ground stations. And um, we were actually the first flight to do that roll the heads up. And of course, you're, you're completely upside down. The computers are actually flying, although you can fly it manually. And uh, I had a bet with my commander uh, which way it was going to roll? Because if the computer thinks you're at you know 179.9 degrees, it's going to roll in one direction. It's always going to roll the right, shortest right. direction. If it's 181, it'll roll the other direction. And as it turns out, it, it rolled my way. And, and when I say by my way, it rolled so that I could see the Earth, and he could. And uh, <laughs> but I'll never forget at that point, And we were probably oh maybe 60 miles high at the time. Uh, seen the earth from space for the first time. Uh, I'll never forget that view and what it was like. And then, of course, you, uh, you know, eight and a half minutes, you're, you're on orbit. You go from, uh, in the end, at the end of the trajectory, you're also at three Gs, and, you, and you, you go from three Gs, and then all of a sudden, you're at zero G, and you're floating, and, and that's it. And then you're into this surreal world that you've never experienced before. So it was, it was pretty cool, but I got used to it pretty quick. 
In the episode with Jim Newman, he discussed the overview effect and how it impacts people differently. How did it impact you? It, it really does. It does. It does affect you differently. Um, I, I would say, you know, uh, from from various aspects, right? You you, I think everybody ends up being more of an environmentalist after they go into space because they see they see the planet globally. They also see it. They see the the good parts of it and they see the damage. Um, you also get a different perspective, I think, internationally doing it. In particular, and maybe that's not so much about being in space, but there's the fact that our office was an international office. We had uh, we had Japanese astronauts, we had um, um, you know European astronauts from multiple countries, Canadian astronauts, Russians, lots of Russians, and we got to know all of these folks, and we work with all of these. Uh, other nations and it, and it and that also changes your perspective about people and you know probably the most dramatic for us was um, you know I was a I was a Cold War fighter pilot and uh, Russians were the you know Soviets were the bad guys and uh, and then you know ten years later I'm flying with them in space and uh, got to know the people um, in fact a really quick Cold War story for you um, so. Back when I was operational, um, you know, the, it was it was all about the Third World War. It was the Soviet bloc against NATO. Uh, the fight was going to be in Europe, and uh, and we would we would all all the pilots we were all certified. It's called certified uh, for missions, and basically we had our first mission or two for the Third World War already planned, and we would have to go plan that mission each year and brief it and certify that we were ready to go with the threats and everything else. And you, you, may, you may have to do something similar in your jobs. Um, but we had to do that for the Cold War. And so my first flight, um, about a month before flight, we flew a, uh, we flew a Ukrainian astronaut, first Ukrainian astronaut on my flight, Leonid Kadanyuk. And Leonid had been a Soviet cosmonaut. And then when the uh, Soviet Union dissolved, he became, he was a Ukrainian, so he went to Ukraine and became Ukrainian astronaut. Um, and uh, but in, in the Soviet Union, he was a actually a, a a a fighter pilot and a test pilot for the Soviet Union. So he flew he flew MiG 21s, MiG 23s, tested MiG 29s, and, and things like that. And uh, so my my uh, my commander on my first flight was an F 111 pilot, also an Air Force pilot. And we were talking one night, and uh, and Leonid was pointing. We had a map of the world out, and Leonid was pointing at where he was based. Uh, when he was flying, I think MiG 23s, and he was a fighter pilot on alert, basically on their side doing the same Cold War, Third World War prep mission that we were. And when he pointed to his base, Kevin looked at his base and he said, Leonid, your base was my target when I was an F-111 pilot. And, and the three of us were just sitting in that room, it was 2 o'clock in the morning, we were up late, goofing off. And, and we just, the three of us just kind of looked at each other and said, wow, how has the world changed? Wow. How surreal was that? Yeah, very surreal moment. If only we could find a way to inspire that international spirit without having to send everyone to space. Although that would be a really cool way to do it. Well, and that's, that's, the, other, that's the other interesting geopolitical thing about space, and, and in particular the space station. You know, and we, we, we have our issues with Russia that are ongoing and continual and they change and they ebb and they flow. And sometimes our relations get really bad. Sometimes they get better. And I've watched this over the years. But 
in the entire time I was at NASA, and I know it's still true today, what was really interesting was our relationship, generally speaking, with the Russians, you know, as part of the space station, was always positive, and it never really changed, no matter what was going on on the ground. Um, and so it was, it was one area that I think we have successfully cooperated with them and continue to do so. And, and, and it almost, it, 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 like I said, it stays pretty constant, even though there's, you know, all of the other stuff that's going on with Russia that, that goes back and forth. That's great to hear. And hopefully NASA will continue to be that anchor point, fostering a mutual sense of cooperation through discovery and exploration. Speaking of exploration, there was some recent big news from NASA with the Perseverance rover landing and I think an upcoming helicopter launch, which should be occurring in the next couple of weeks or so. Is that right? Yeah, I think the last I heard is it's about two weeks. And so, yeah, we're pretty, uh, we're pretty excited about it. And in particular, the, you know, the company I work for now, Sierra Nevada, our space systems group up here, um, we actually have about 18 subsystems on the, uh, on the uh, Perseverance rover. Is that right? Um, Is that right? And, and we've been on every, actually we've, been, we've had stuff flying on every single interplanetary mission NASA's ever done in the last 30 years or more. Um, all the rovers. Um, when you saw, if you saw the really cool video of the uh, rover landing, um, the last part of that was where, where the uh, rover was lowered down on a cable and set, set, set down gently on the Martian surface. We actually built the mechanism that lowered it. And so they, they, they talk about the seven minutes of terror, which is the entry portion. And we're, we're like the last 30 seconds of that seven minutes of terror. So we, we were sweating that. And we did the same thing on Curiosity, so we sweat that one too. And we actually have a number of the mechanisms that are that lowered, they're going to lower that helicopter onto the surface. We, we didn't build the helicopter itself, but a lot of the mechanisms that are supporting that helicopter is, is our company built. That is really impressive. What strikes me as particularly amazing is not just the seemingly insurmountable engineering problems, but the number of people, government, governmental organizations, and civilian companies involved that all manage to coordinate and work together in a way that is conducive to designing, building, and testing these systems, which then go out and, and execute successful missions. Orchestrating all of those efforts must be a real challenge. Yeah, it, it is, and it is. It is a large team. It's a diverse team. You know, the management challenges are their big management challenges doing those sorts of things. And you know, JPL is just really good at doing those those kind of exploration missions. They've done a whole bunch of them and been very very successful. So I read an article yesterday actually that the helicopter has a cloth swatch from the original Wright brothers aircraft on board, which will now get the opportunity to fly on another planet. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it, it is. I, I I read that too. I didn't know they'd done that, but that's really cool that they got a I guess a piece of the fabric that wrapped the wings, uh, the right flyer on there, and they're uh, yeah, and and the the technology is really interesting. You know, helicopter only weighs about four pounds, and uh, it's got counter rotating uh, blades, and they're really large blades, only lifting about a four pound payload. But the 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 atmosphere on Mars is so thin that that they got to. So it's going to be really interesting to see how it actually flies. Hopefully their predictions on, you know, the density altitude and all that kind of stuff are correct. Yeah, in college I studied applied physics and had the opportunity to take several aerospace engineering courses. It's challenging enough to build something that can fly on Earth. 
I can't imagine the hurdles in trying to design something to fly in another planet's atmosphere, especially when you can easily test your aircraft in those conditions. So in your current work now, you had mentioned the Dream Chaser. Can you tell us a little bit more about that project? So uh, Dream Chaser is uh, what we're building. It's called Dream Chaser, and it's, uh, it's essentially a, uh, it's a lifting body spacecraft. So what I mean by lifting body is if you look at the space shuttle and X-37, uh, those, those, sp those space planes are, are winged spacecraft. We're lifting body because the vast majority of the lift in, in the atmosphere that we produce is, is generated by, by the body and only about 30% uh, by the wings. But uh, it's essentially a, uh, it's a mini space shuttle. Uh, it's designed to carry, in this case, our primary contract that we're working on right now is, is to provide a science and cargo back and forth to the International Space Station. So we have a contract with NASA. We're building the. We're in production on the cargo version now. We're going to fly next year, uh, but we also have done work on and some previous contracts on the crewed version. We continue to build a crewed version that's designed to carry up to six people uh, on either you know free flight missions to low Earth orbit or or up to space station. Um, where it comes from is it, it was actually it was start it started as something called the HL20 that NASA Langley worked way back in the early 80s. They worked it from about 83 to 95. It was designed to be a crew transport to the space station. It was going to replace the space shuttle, much smaller than the space shuttle. Um, and, uh, but then it kind of died in 1995. And then uh, around 2009, 2010, our company went to NASA and we, we, since it was sitting on the shelf, we asked, uh, we'd like to do a technology transfer because we'd like to develop this into a lifting body spacecraft because we we see the future of commercial spaceflight, and uh, we think, uh, you know, a lifting body spacecraft that can land on a runway any, anywhere in the world is the way to go. And so that's where it came from. Its, its original roots, believe it or not, actually come from, from a Soviet program called the Bor 4, where they had, uh, they flew a couple of uh, one-orbit flights with uh, these little demonstrators that shape is very similar to the Dream Chaser at 50% scale. And they were testing thermal protection systems uh, for their Soviet brand program, which is their space shuttle program. Um, and so that's where it actually originated. Uh, and, of course, their Bore 4 originated from our lifting body program that we had in, at NASA in the 60s. So, anyway, it's funny how, how the technology evolves and comes around. And so we're working on a cargo version and a crewed version for that. I'm going to fly next year. Uh, hope to fly crew, and we're really looking at the future, and the future is um, NASA is going to go focus on exploration. Uh, the space station eventually will be decommissioned when it wears out. Um, NASA wants to focus their budget on exploration, and they're looking for commercial companies to take over low-Earth orbit, essentially transportation and destinations. And so we're actually working on both pieces, Dream Chaser for transportation for the whole world. Our vehicle specifically designed with things like no toxic fuels on board so that we can land anywhere in the world without special equipment, you know, a reusability, quick turnaround, low operating costs. Uh, we're taking advantage of the, of the reduced launch prices that continue to occur around the world. Um, we're also building a destination, believe it or not. We, uh, we have a program with NASA we're working on right now, an inflatable habitat, um, which is unique because it'll fit inside of a standard five-meter fairing rocket and the, one, the prototype we have in testing right now with NASA expands to 27 feet in diameter. So you can get a whole bunch of volume and space for people uh, on a single rocket launch. And so 
with our Dream Chaser NAT, we hope to be uh, provide commercial transportation destinations, uh, quite frankly, to the whole world in the future. So that's what we're that's our big picture vision. That's awesome. I seem to recall at one point, perhaps in a popular science magazine or something, that airlines were very interested in lifting body aircraft due to their efficiency and fuel savings. But as I recall, one of the limiting factors was the cost of construction and that, at least at the time, it was just much cheaper to build the cylindrical tube of the airliner at scale. And I suspect that has some to do with it. Um, but I can tell you that in the world of, uh, in the, world of uh, the way manufacturing is going and the emphasis on composites, you know, mm -hmm. uh, complex structures, our, our vehicles all composite. Uh, with composites these days, you can do a lot of things very cost-effective and very strong that you couldn't do back in the day. And so I, I would say that the technology advances and additive manufacturing, all those things, are in the digital engineering that I'm sure you're hearing about, uh, all of that is really revolutionizing how you can design and build um, you know, complex uh, shapes, if you will. So it's, it's changing. Obviously, one of the major changes that has occurred over the last decade plus is the huge influx of civilian and commercial interests in space exploration, research, and soon for cons consumer needs like tourism, for example. Do you feel that the area of space is becoming very competitive, or is there still a sense of cooperation or unified purpose there? I very much think we're past the tipping point, and uh, I would say that it gets more competitive every hour of every day. And it's really, if you look at, you know, let, let's take one industry, the small satellites and the pro proliferation of constellations. You look at OneWeb, you look at what Elon's doing with uh, his Starlink and launching, you know, a thousand satellites in orbit. And you're seeing, you're seeing a, a huge commercial market developing. You're seeing multiple companies, uh, multiple rocket providers, um, prices coming down and access to space going up. So I think we're I think we're at the at the cusp of a boom and uh, and we're in this transition. And, and uh, you know, launch vehicle pricing is probably one of the bigger drivers as as, the, as those as the price to get to space. You know, because it takes a lot of energy to get to space to get, get up to Mach 25. Um, but as that as the price goes down, the access and the number of people that want access and want to do things in space goes up. So I think we're actually past the tipping point and we're headed rapidly into a, uh, a, a pretty crazy commercial era. So what was the motivation behind going to space previously in, in terms of experiments and research to conduct? And I ask because as we go forward, there is going to really be a commercial market for those type of interests. Sure. Well, so, so I would say NASA, at least from the NASA perspective, we've been trying to commercialize space for a long time. Uh, even even in the early space shuttle missions I was flying, we had commercial companies flying research payloads on orbit. I'll give you one example. On one of my flights, we flew a uh, payload for a uh, for a company that flew actually flew a couple of flowers, believe it or not, in space, and they were pulling and uh, doing some zero g research on that, pulling the fragrance and uh, actually developed a perfume out of it um, <laughs> as impressive. an example. Um, there's, um, there's a, there, I just saw an article yesterday on the space station. There was a company that flew um, some wine in some special uh, steel bottles up there 
to analyze the chemistry and what happens in a zero G. Can they make a better wine out of it and things like that? And uh, I just read some article where they brought it all that down and these uh, wine experts were doing a wine tasting comparing the same wine that had been on Earth to the wine that had been aged, you know, for six months or however long it was up on space station. So there's been a pull for commercial, but it's been limited. I, I can tell you there's been huge emphasis commercially in the biopharma region. Uh, one example is um, protein crystal growth, something we've been doing for years. Um, you know, the typically like, you know, some cancers and flus and different different types of diseases, the, the it's... Uh, it's a protein crystal is the shape and they try to grow. So you, you, the, the way to think about it is you have this crystal and you want, want to look inside this crystal and understand the structure of the crystal. And I'm certainly no biochemist or anything, but you want to, I'll, I'll explain it in pilot talk. So you want to look inside this crystal and understand its structure. And if you can understand its structure to, you know, to great detail, you can figure out a remedy for it or a cure for it or a, or a you know, cancer medicine to go attack it and think of it as, looking at the inside of a lock and being able to design a key to open that lock. The problem with growing these crystals on the ground is the, the gravity so much affects them. It crushes them. And so you get a misshapen, small, difficult to read crystal. You take that same thing and you take it up into a microgravity environment, you can grow that crystal maybe 10,000 times larger and it has perfect shape because it has no forces acting on it. Right, and right. doing that sort of research, which we've been doing for years and years and years, they've developed, um, you know, some um, vaccines for various flus and different things like that out of it. And uh, so that's a huge area. Biopharma, I see that commercially in the future. Manufacturing in space. Right now, I think it's more manufacturing things that you can manufacture purely in space, study, and then figure out how to replicate it on the ground because it's too expensive to, you know, manufacture in bulk. In space. However, someday I think that will be possible as well. Um, one of the other examples of stuff we did is uh, we looked at um, metallurgy. We had a furnace on orbit. I did some furnace work. We'd have these metal samples and heat up these metals and let them cool and see the structures they form. And basically, we were developing and, and improved alloys for jet engine blades and different things like that because, because again, because of the microgravity environment. So I think the future markets will be a lot in the manufacturing, the biopharma, we're seeing that now. You see tourism starting to heat up. Right now it's just high net worth individuals, but as the price goes down, I think you'll see that increase in the future. Um, the uh, you know satellite servicing, obviously the satellite stuff. Um, uh, I think you everybody knows that um, that you know from a security standpoint, uh, everybody's in space now and we have a, a huge national security need in space as well that we have to make sure that we uh, we have this commercial economy and all of these things happening in space. And we have things like a great GPS constellation. Well, we don't want that to be denied to us. So that's a, that's a big area. That's not a commercial area, but that's certainly an area that everybody's paying attention to. So there's, I just mentioned a few, but we, we've actually done a lot of market studies to look at all of these things because, again, we see a commercial low-Earth orbit in our future, and we want to make sure... We understand those markets and create those markets so that when we have our products in space, we have uh, you know plenty of demand for them. It's getting crowded quickly, isn't it? It sure is. Especially as the Space Force stands up. I'm considering resigning my commission to be a Space Force door gunner. A door gunner, yeah. 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 Well, I have two final questions for you as we finish up here. 
the first is if you had the opportunity to go back to space, would you? And the second is what advice do you have for the officers and students at NPS and AFIT? Oh boy. Okay. Well, the first one, uh, if I had the right opportunity to go back up in space, I would. I would. If I were going to go back up in space again, I really want to. I really want to be one of the ones that goes to the moon. Um, but I don't think that's ever going to happen. Um, now, if you ask my family uh, if I'm going to go up in space again, they would. Uh, they would uh, tell me uh, no. I think one my one of my daughters told me a while back said. Dad, if you go up and, because, you know, I, I actually originally came here, we were working on the crude version, they originally hired me to do the flight test on the crude version and do that first flight in space on the crude version. But uh, my daughter told me, my youngest daughter, I think, told me, says, Dad, if you, uh, if you go up in space again, or try to, she said, I'm going to kill you and use the insurance money to buy a house. So um, <laughs> I think my family, uh, you know, Every time you go in space, I think we all know the risks. It's, it's you know, and of course, uh, you know, they had friends and, and I, my best friends, some of my best friends were on Columbia. And so yeah, I think the yeah. risks associated with it, um, my family has has a different idea whether I should go in space again. Let's see. And the second question was uh, advice. Boy, uh, I don't know. I, 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 the first thing I'd say to, you know, guys that are going through, uh, guys and girls that are going through grad school is, it's a great opportunity and, and it may be painful right now because it's a lot of work, but what a great opportunity. You know, I can tell you that, and, and I actually went back and spoke at the AFIT 100th anniversary back in 2019. And, uh, and I told them, I said, I said, if I hadn't have gone to AFIT um, and had that opportunity, um, being as successful as I was as a test pilot and certainly getting to be an astronaut later and even what I'm doing today, um, all of those things that I did since that time would not have been possible if I didn't get the opportunity to go there. And so what I would tell all the uh, young, you know, all you young folks that are going to school right now is, is, is embrace the opportunity, learn as much as you can, look for opportunities to apply it. Um, it's part of the journey and you will not regret doing it and it will pay off in big dividends. The other thing I tell you is, is um, it's easy, it's, it's good to have really hard goals. Um, the, the one thing I tell school kids about, because uh, I get this question a lot and uh, you know, what I, what I tell kids is that, you know, I was really fortunate to be an astronaut, but um, what I tried to do in my career was pick things Pick a journey that I really wanted to be on and do those things that I wanted to do. And, and often the astronauts or people that want to be astronauts come to me, well, what do I need to do to be an astronaut? And I said, I said, what you need to do is excel in what you love to do. And, uh, you know, don't don't choose things to do because you're focused on a, a, a goal, particularly if you're choosing th to do things that you don't really want to do or you're not interested in. So, you know, be passionate about what you're doing. Do the best you can. But most importantly, enjoy the journey along the way. Because I, for me, I was very fortunate to become an astronaut. But when I applied, I didn't think I was going to get selected. And if I hadn't got selected, it would have been okay. I would have been okay with it. And so I didn't, I didn't hang my whole life on that. And uh, I was just fortunate enough to get the opportunity. So I guess that was kind of a rambling answer. But that's kind of how I view life. No, that's great advice. Thank you so much for taking your time. 
to be with us on the show and talk to the students uh, at NPS and AFID. Yeah, I have too. It's good, good to talk to you. Tell your dad hello. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. This episode was recorded on March 25th, 2021. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast.